0: So last night, we had quite a wonderful talk. It felt a little to me like here we all were, hearing the story of the Buddha. Daddy, tell us the story (laughs) of the Buddha one more time. And you know, I sat here thinking, I don't know how many times I've heard this story. I mean, probably hundreds at this point. And it was wonderful to hear it again. And and to have both a sense of Bob's vision and then of course the inspiration of this amazing vision that the Buddha had that really laid the groundwork for his eighty years of teaching and of course twenty six hundred years of continuing to reach people, you know, millions of people all over the world. Isn't that astounding? You know, I I think of that a lot. Like, who's going to be talking about Mary Grace Orr or Bob Stahl in twenty six hundred years? Probably not too many people. Maybe Bob, but you know. <laughs> and but so, what do you do to have people still talking twenty six hundred years later? It's pretty pretty impressive. And so you know, and one of the things he talked about that I found really touching was that place where he talks about the young Buddha being out there, except he's not the Buddha yet, of course, he's the Bodhisattva, young Gautama, and he sees the field being plowed. And then he realizes that in that field there are lots and lots of little beings who are being injured by the plow and are being chopped up. And, I remember after I heard that story the first time ever, you know how sometimes when it rains around here, the worms all come out and get out on the road, pick them up, pick them up, take good care of the worms. I don't know how many worms I've collected over the years. It's kind of fun. So we're suffering too, right? We're suffering too. And actually these days, it probably feels to a lot of us like we're kind of in some field that's being plowed by several really crazy farmers and we are being <laughs> chopped up. You know, it's very painful and it's very confusing. It's a hard, hard time. And so even though you are having a blessed week away from the internet and the computer and all of that, um, still we carry that suffering with us. It's it's There's a way that Um, We can't not have it with us, even if we're not talking about it. So at this point in the retreat, we come to where we're having practice discussions. And it's actually one of my most favorite parts of the retreat, the day that we start talking to you. Because up until then, you're out there, and it's true, I know a few of you, a couple of you fairly well, But a lot of you I don't know. And and, you know, you look great. You're sitting there and your eyes are closed and your backs are straight and you're still. And I'm thinking, oh my, you know. Half the time I'm convinced that probably you're not very happy at the retreat and you certainly don't like me and all of those kinds of things. All those, you know, it's human, right? And then you come in and you sit down and we begin to talk. And it changes, right? It changes. And, you know, you begin to tell us about yourselves and tell us what's going on in your heart. And it feels like we're getting little peeks into your world and we're hearing about your suffering and your confusion and your struggle and where you feel like you're being plowed over. And then, of course, I'm sure this is true of Bob because I know him pretty well. I know about his heart and I know that my heart really just begins to open as I listen to you and as I struggle to find the right response that meets your particular situation. And what I see is we're all in this together. You know, we are really all in this together and your struggles are very similar to my struggles and my struggles are very similar to yours. So today's the day when we often talk about difficulties in practice hindrances they're sometimes called and I'm going to talk about it a little not a lot but some and but I also want to talk tonight about how we trust our practice how do we come to really have some sense that this practice this practice is something we need and is going to carry us into our lives and maybe into our, probably into our deaths. But of course, if practice isn't going well, if you're bumping into a lot of these obstacles, if you're um, really struggling on the cushion, it's pretty hard to trust that this is the right thing. So one of the things I really want to say is, it's really normal to have trouble in your practice And maybe I particularly want to say it to those of you who've sat a gazillion retreats. Because, you know, when you've sat a gazillion retreats, you come in and you sit down and you think, okay, I've got this down. I know how to do a retreat. And and then the mind goes berserk over something or the body is having troubles that it never had before or something of that sort. And it's not such an easy retreat. So for those of you who are beginning... You're probably expecting that there's gonna be some obstacles and some difficulties, so you're in a somewhat better place, but it's normal for everyone. it really is you know we get caught with wanting you know wanting wanting, wanting whatever it is that you're wanting chocolate maybe or pizza or a hamburger or you know whatever it is that you're not getting here and or maybe your own bed or your own pillow or your puppy those kinds of things. You're sweetie, you know, or maybe you're angry, you know, and anger comes up and you're really annoyed and agitated and irritated at everyone and everything, or the body gets really, really restless and keeps moving around, or you're overwhelmingly sleepy, probably that happened today, you know, and yesterday, the first couple of days of retreats are often very sleepy days, or you're really questioning What's going on here? You're just filled with doubt. So this desire, aversion, restlessness, sleepiness, and doubt, those are the five major areas of difficulties. So you remember last night when Bob said, you know, there's two groups of people, you know? There's the group of people who have issues, and then there's the people who are dead. (laughs) I loved it, you know, it's such a good... So, you know, so there's two groups of people. There's the people who have obstacles in their practice and the people who are dead. So that's kind of how it is in all these different realms. So you're part of the club. And I just, I can't tell you how important it is to hear that. I've been reading this week, somebody turned me on, one of my students in Volcano, and um, to a book by Father Greg Boyle, some of you may know of his work, and it's called Tattoos on the Heart, and he works with the gangs down in Los Angeles. He has done fabulous work down there for many, many years, has something called Homeboy Industries. and Really transformative work. And one of the things that comes up over and over again, here are these kids, these kids who have suffered so incredibly, they've been beaten, they've been raped, they've been shot at. They have parents who have deserted them maybe many times over, over and over and over again. So much suffering, caught in the gang world. They don't think very highly of themselves and they can't even imagine that it's okay to have messed up and that they could still be loved. Mm. And how transformative it is when people, some people, Greg Boyle is one of them, comes along and actually opens up and takes them in in some way. And I think that's some of what we can do here is as we learn to work with the difficulties in our practice and find that, you you know, we'll, we'll still take you in. We want you to be here and we will love you, obstacles and awe. so when these things come along you're sitting here just minding your own business breathing in breathing out and all of a sudden you know here's this huge desire or this piece of anger one of the really important first things is just to know it and to name it oh look at that isn't that interesting that's a good line actually isn't that interesting i'm angry you know so sort of, just being willing to see it and to look at it and to name it and there are things that you can do that counter them if the, if there's a lot of anger loving kindness practice counters it if there's a lot of desire reflections on impermanence you will not get to keep whatever it is you desire because it's impermanent and if you're sleepy there's a long long list <coughs> that are everything from standing up and opening your eyes, which are very common, to sitting out in the forest where there are tigers. And I do believe there are mountain lions in the Santa Cruz Mountains, so, you know, you could try it if you wanted to. And I think the fence will probably keep them out of here, but you never know. So that's sleepiness. Restlessness, the really difficult remedy for restlessness is to concentrate even more, which is really difficult to do when you're restless. And then for doubt, it's being in a place like this, coming to where there's teachings and teachers and there's spiritual friends who can support your practice. <coughs> Excuse me. Mm-hmm. So the good news is that although I don't think there's anybody in this room who has no hindrances at all, permanently. It's not me anyway. I don't think it's Bob, no. And But it is quite common for there to be fewer as you practice more because you learn how to navigate it. And also as you get more settled and more concentrated, there are fewer hindrances. And sometimes, even for a period of time, there be, may be none in your practice. So the other thing to say about difficulties in practice is that often... In our practice, you come here. I think, oh, great, you know, quiet and peace. And then what walks in the door but some old memory, or some old piece of woundedness from some time in your life? Sometimes way, way in the past, you know, things that you hadn't thought about for a long time. And that can be really startling. You, know, you didn't come to look at old wounds. You came for this, but. And Jack Cornfield used to say to us when I was first sitting, he said, you know, you think you came to a retreat, but really you've come to the garbage dump. And so, you know, it's where we bring it's where we bring our stuff. And this is this is some of the stuff of Vipassana. Vipassana is both a wisdom practice. That's great. We like that part. You know, that's where you're going to see more clearly and have insight into your own being and into the process of being human. And it's a purification practice. So it's part of the deal that things that are in there will come to the surface and you will have to look at them. And this can be, it can be scary because it feels like, you know, you're just somehow supposed to. Go on and go deeper and suffer more, and um I think that's you know usually what these places these are like the worms, right? These are the places that are all cut up and chopped up, and they're suffering, and they're wounded, and they need compassion and they need tenderness, so you know it can be really, really helpful to talk about it for sure with us also helpful just to sit with it, you know. Hello, wound. I know you're there, you know. And I see you. And I'm sitting here with you. I'm not going to try to make you go away. And maybe when you're ready to speak, I'll welcome it. You can come in. And if you don't want to talk yet, that's fine. I just, you know, I know you're there. And that in itself, that kind of stance towards our own suffering is is healing. We know how to do this for other people, don't we? You know, if you've ever had a child, you know, who's been suffering, you know, they fall and skin their knee or whatever, or, you know, or a friend who's gotten hurt, we instinctively pull them in. Oh, poor boo-boo, you know, feel better. And we try to help them. And we do it so much better for everybody else. And we do it for ourselves. So of course the other thing is that if you're new particularly, you, you probably do question you know, is this really, is this the right practice for me? Is it going to work? You know, it seems kind of ordinary in lots and lots of ways and but you know and you still question there's lots of hype about mindfulness now you know you can buy mindful just about mindful everything um i mean mindful it's just not mindful meditation you can have mindful laundry detergent and you know it's 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 kind of crazy however i will point out mindfulness has been around for a long time you know the buddha taught 2600 years ago and actually, if you look at just about any meditation tradition and any um, lineage of practice anywhere in the world, it involves being present. Sit down, get quiet, pay attention, and be here. You know, and you can't. Um, there's a quote I put in later in the talk, but I'll say it now because it comes up. It's from Angelus Silesius, and it says. Um well actually it's not it doesn't fit here never mind delete I'll put it in later I'll put it in later So what I wanted to do tonight is to look at this issue of trust you know how how do we come to trust our practice And I wanted to use as a framework for the conversation a list that's called the five faculties And I particularly like this list. It's a list of five different things because it's actually two lists. It's the five faculties, so the five things that you can use to develop your practice, and it's the five strengths. So these are the things that will be strong as you practice and as you go deeper. So these are conviction and energy and mindfulness itself and concentration and wisdom. So they're like items in your toolkit. You know, you've got a little bag with your meditation tools, and they are useful here. And of course, they'll be useful when you get home. So the first one on the list is conviction. The word in Pali is sadha, S-A-D-D-H-A, and it's often translated as faith. But you know, faith is a loaded word in our culture now, doesn't it? carries too much baggage, it has a lot to do with belief or belief that isn't founded on knowledge and it just isn't very helpful for too many people. Conviction is probably a better word and I'm actually playing around with the word trust right now. I really do like the word trust for what that implies about faith. The Pali word actually means to place the heart upon. So it means that this is something you can actually place your heart out on it. Um, Seems like trust. And the Buddha, you know, the Buddha was a very realistic guy. Really, he understood the human psyche and he knew that you didn't just be trustful. You know, boom, okay, this is a good practice, trust it. Yes, doesn't work that way. And so the image he used is one of finding an elephant in the jungle. Now, I think it's really helpful to remember as we talk about this elephant, that elephants in Asia are very, very useful animals. And they are, they're different from the African elephant. They're smaller and they're much more easy to tame and people have used them for centuries to do the work on the land. They haul logs, they do, they carry people, do all kinds of things. So finding a really good, strong elephant is sometimes important if you have work to do on your land. So if you go out hunting for an elephant, maybe you've heard, you know, there's an elephant out behind the retreat center and it would be nice if we could find it. And you so you go and you look, you know, and, You might not see it because, of course, in Asia the jungles can be pretty thick, you can't see much. But at some point, you might find a footprint and you go, Oh, huh, yeah, looks like a really nice big elephant. Big footprint, elephant footprints are you know, they're really pretty impressive. And, um, but then, of course, it's not sure that that's a big elephant, it might be you know, a little teeny elephant with great big feet or something like that. So it's not a for sure thing. It's not sure that the elephant is still there, but you you go, okay, I think I'll look more. Now, you know this place. We all know this place. So I you have to think about, like, think about of an intimate relationship that you are in, the one you are in, or maybe one that you were in once Or maybe the connection that you made to a teacher, you know, a really special teacher for you, or a dear friend, or maybe even to your dog or your cat, you know. And there's a point with often with these people, you meet them, you know, you meet the person of your, the flavor of your choice, or you meet the dog, or you meet the teacher, and you go, wow, wow, wow. And this is, for me, this is the one I want. And you fall in love, kind of, right? I think that probably everybody in this room has fallen in love at least once. And we get really, really excited. This might be the right person. This might be the right cat. It might be a perfect friend for me. And so something draws you in. Something draws you in. And then, you know, maybe you see them some more. You go on the next date. You know, or sometimes things move along a little faster than that for some people, as they did with me. and Or you sign up for the next 10 retreats, or you take the dog home with you from the pound, as I recently did. (laughs) So this is where you think, all right, this, this is possibly for me, the elephant is here. So what happens next? But it's not enough, is it? Because sometimes, a couple of dates in, things fail entirely. You realize this is not the person for me. and has really unpleasant habits of some sort. And of course, everybody has some unpleasant habits. I could tell you a few of Russell's, but the only one I'll tell you tonight is that he plays awful games involving tanks on his computer. <laughs> Or maybe the dog comes home with you, and he chews on things, and he poops on the rug, and he escapes, and it's a real problem. Or maybe the teacher turns out to be human, maybe a little bit too human, and what are you going to do then? And so the relationship ends, or the dog gets sent back to the rescue shelter, which one of mine did, not by me, but by the previous owner. Or you hunt for another teacher, because it hasn't worked out. And sometimes they do work out you do stay connected, you know, develop trust. And so at this point, the Buddha would say, your trust is verified. This is the point where you actually see the elephant in the jungle. Oh yes, there really is one in there. You maybe haven't caught it yet, but you know that it's there. And you know all these signs that you've been following are good. And so there's the elephant. And so gradually, and that's how it is in life, gradually we see more and our conviction and our trust deepen. So my dear Russell of the tanks has been a stable and loving husband for 38 years now. Pretty amazing. And the little dog who was rejected by another family has settled in and is just filled with love. And all of us here have found something really good in the teachings you're here. So here we are. So we sit here. We're filled with pain. The room has lots of pain and illness and injury. There's so much of it in the circle the other night when you were all talking. You know, we were mentioning that tonight, how touched we were that, at the openness and the depth of, of suffering. And um, you know, So we, we have all that suffering, and of course we know, as we were reminded again last night, we're gonna die. You know, all of us. So how do we trust our practice in all of this suffering? How do we move forward? And the Buddha saw this so clearly. You know, he, he talked so much about impermanence. Sometimes when you read the suttas, you think, doesn't he ever talk about anything else? Always talking about impermanence. And, you know, trusting practice really came up for me last winter because I ended up having two surgeries for breast cancer And one for a melanoma. And this was really sobering. The the breast cancer came first. And, you know, there's that point, point, and many of you know this place, either for yourselves or people that you've been close to, where you've got the diagnosis, but you really don't know much. And you think, you know, this could be it. You know, this could go from one thing to the other, and I've watched it happen with many people. Sometimes it goes fast, sometimes it's slow, and I sort of thought, well, hmm, can can I practice into this? Can I really let my practice, my faith, my conviction carry me all the way into that last breath? Can I do that? And sometimes the answer was, yeah, I think I can do it. It was very sweet. And sometimes I wasn't so sure. I wasn't so sure, you know? So the good news, of course, is that the outcomes on all three were excellent. And I'm absolutely quite clear at the moment. I just celebrated my 78th. I told you that the other night. But... The handwriting is on the wall, you know, at 78, you know, it's very interesting to start realizing I can say, well, you know, 15 years from now, and then I think, well, mm-hmm, 15 years from now, I might have been dead for 10 of them, you know, maybe, it happens. My, and I talked to my surgeon a few weeks ago, I said, you know, I'm sprouting cancers just all over the place. He said, yeah, you're getting old. <laughs> so, Okay wasn't quite what I wanted to hear. So do I trust this amazing mystery that we are in, this amazing mystery that is embodiment in time and space? Can I trust that it's okay? Can I trust incarnation, if you want to call it that? that it is life and death. And I realized when I was writing this talk that maybe that should be all one word, life and death. Because we tend to have life or you have death. But it's not that way. It's completely intertwined life and death. So it seems a good idea to consider it and to practice with it and to see if i can work with developing my practice developing my trust so that maybe i can go into those last moments of consciousness whether they are right as i die or even well before it um letting go and being present and so that really means that we have to prepare you know you can't just assume that it's not going to happen stephen levine was one of my early teachers Used to say, you know, I don't want to die saying, "Oh shit," you know, because he was not being prepared for it. He really wanted to be ready. So we experiment with trust, and you've all done that, you know. You begin to trust. You trust it enough to begin to practice wherever that was for you—the MBSR class, inside Santa Cruz, here at IRC, all the many, many places where we begin. It's where you saw the footprint of the elephant and that's where you began your practice search. So this is where effort and energy comes in because as much as we would love for it to be true when we're at the falling in love stage, it doesn't just happen. It does not just happen. It really requires practice. Meditation requires practice. Spiritual journeys require practice. Intimate relationships require practice. Just about anything that's worth doing on this planet requires practice. You have to work at it, which means you have to have a certain level of energy. And retreats, of course, can be really, really helpful in this way because it's a place where your energy is really focused. But they really also require a wise use of energy, and each of you has to find your own way based on your own health and your own habits. So for some of you who might be inclined to be a bit lazy under normal circumstances, and you're pretty healthy and strong, might be the perfect time to push this week. Push a little harder, sit a little longer, Stay up a little later, get up a little earlier, all those things you know it's a little bit like the Buddha when he sat down under the Bodhi tree. you know, mm, I'm gonna do it this time. Now he was the Bodhisattva, and he had he was pretty advanced, so you might not get that, but to bring that kind of energy. but that's not true for all of you because some of you are injured or you're ill, and so you're gonna have a very different kind of retreat. Remember, the Buddha's image for energy is the tuning of a lute. And so the strings have to be just right. And if you've ever watched a string player, they are always messing with the tuning of their strings. They're tightening them up, they're loosening them down, this, that, the other, you know, it's always going on. And so that's true here. You know, you might have the kind of retreat that you push, or you might have the kind of a retreat where you sit outside and look at the trees and you take a nap and you go for a walk to go for a walk, to the extent that you can on this property. And it's really gentle and really kind because that's what's happening with your body. So it's a very individual decision and if you look around you, which I know you're not doing, you may see people having very, very different kinds of retreats. One of the images that I've always liked about um, bringing a certain level of intensity to practice is an image that's in the suttas about the, the, um, a contest where there was a, a beauty queen you know, really stunningly beautiful woman. And um, the man, there was a man who was supposed to walk between the queen and the crowd, and he's carrying a bowl filled to the brim, right to the brim with oil. So she's stunning, and there's this crowd all around him. And there's another man behind him with a sword who's going to cut off his head if he spills one drop of the oil now you can imagine he paid attention right he walked very very carefully now you know no one's cutting off any heads here you know we're not going that direction at all but imagine practicing that way imagine practicing like ah and even if you're doing the restful practice you can still bring that care that same Care to it? Can I find exactly the right level of energy for this event that calls itself me in this particular moment? Sometimes. They even require a strong, strong purpose, and the strong purpose is I'm giving up, which doesn't mean you go home. It just means, I don't know what's going on. I can't figure it out. I can't do it right now. I'm giving up, which might mean you go sit and have a cup of tea, and then you start all over again. Giving up, I think, is a really integral part of many, many, many retreats. At the center of this group of things, and so I, we've had conviction, we've had energy, is mindfulness. And mindfulness is sort of like um, the umbrella in a way. It keeps an eye on everything. And it's on so many lists. Oh, my goodness. I don't know how many lists mindfulness is on, but it's pretty much always there. And it's that practice of being present, which is your very, very familiar with. John Tarrant says, talks about attention. He says, it's an attention so persevering it becomes a kind of love. Attention gives us more life. It expands the register, bringing us to notice more of the vividness of our dark lives so that we can exist in our true range and not go around missing things as if we knew countries only from their airports and hotels. Attention is the most basic form of love. Through it, we blush and are blessed. While we attend to the interior life, we also connect with what surrounds us. The espresso machine hissing, the green points on the snowdrops nodding over the cold ground. What was matter and merely inanimate becomes family. And we, the children, walking, walking home. I've always loved that quote because it's so true, isn't it? There's that place where we fly over something. Most of us have been on airplanes, some of us many, many times, and you see one thing. And then if you're on the ground walking, it's very different. And I was thinking as I was writing, so a little more than a year ago, uh, some of you probably remember that the volcano on the Big Island was erupting. It's a pretty intense time for all of us who live there. And near the end of the time that it was erupting, I had the great good fortune to go up in a very small plane and fly over the eruption itself. And from the air, um, it's stunningly beautiful. It's stunningly beautiful. You know, the clouds of fume and smoke, and the there was a river of lava. I mean, can you imagine a river? You know, big river as wide as this room just flowing fast and full, it was an amazing eruption. And um, the shininess of the new Pahoehoe lava, it was so wonderful, but that was from the air. And I didn't walk out there, they weren't letting people out there, but I have walked on lava, on new lava, I know some of you have too. And I have walked where the lava is moving along. And, you know, that's another story. That's another story. The fumes can be really noxious and um, there can be enormous heat. There's a teaching that says if your shoes start to stick, you better turn around because you're getting too close. And, you know, new lava is very sharp sharp and often very fragile. So you can break through and really (laughs) cut yourself. So... Hmm, so how to be up close and yet keep a distance, you know, and you could have a really wrong view from the distance, couldn't you? From looking at it just from the sky. So we, in order to know something really intimately, we have to be up close, you know. And Dogen has that wonderful teaching. He says, meditation is intimacy with all things. And perhaps most importantly, it's intimacy with your own being. To be intimate with ourselves. Often the last person we want to be intimate with, but probably the most important. So mindfulness is that which it notices, it attends, it's present, it's not asleep, it's not in denial. It can be with what's difficult. I heard that from some of you today, you know, about what it was to be with some states and things that were coming up that were really difficult and with that which is lovely, absolutely lovely. It simply sees what is there and it sees the arising and passing of each event. So then we get to concentration. And, you know, concentration and focus, we all know about focus. It's probably an easier word for us in some ways. And we know how it is to, what it is to focus on our work. And this is pretty much the same thing that you're doing here. You're focusing the mind. Sometimes I've thought of it as being like a telephoto lens and a camera. And sometimes you take the telephoto and you get right up close to the tiniest, tiniest little thing. And There are other times when you need to be way back here so that's how we work with our attention and our concentration and concentration can is um very helpful in this practice and you've been working on it some of you may not realize that but you have so focusing on the breath that really simple practice that we started with is the groundwork for concentration in so many different realms you know just learning to be present with the breath, which seems so simple. And it's so hard to just stay there and come back over and over again. But it's what teaches us how to be present. That's what a practice is, really. You know, it's, it's a teaching. It's learning how to do something. And so sometimes we're present with some one thing really, really up close and sometimes we, we take that concentration back a little bit and we're focusing on moment to, moment to moment to moment to moment to moment kind of experience, but you're still always there. Now, The breath work is concentration practice. Metta has sometimes been used for concentration. Bob's 32 parts of the body uh, was originally anyway a concentration practice. Well, that's not quite how we teach it now, but um, it still can be used that way. So it's where we connect with our experience. We keep our attention there, we relax into it. That's a very important instruction with concentration, to relax into the experience, because we often think, okay, I'm gonna see you, and it doesn't work so well. So we're relaxing into whatever it is. And one other thing about concentration often some happiness and some joy begins to arise and that's a, that's something to encourage actually because you know we concentrate better when we're happy right if you're grumpy are you going to concentrate you know, no, I don't think so. Mostly if we're grumpy, we're thinking about how to change things. So when that there's a certain kind of joy that begins to arise, you can just allow it to be there and use it to support your practice. So we're with concentration, we're letting go of our defenses and we're kind of really penetrating each experience with our awareness. We're not leaning out into the future, what's coming next. We're not leaning back into the past, it's just this. And it's a skill, you know, you don't just, again, it's one of those things, you don't just get it overnight. You don't trust overnight. You don't concentrate overnight. It takes time. And even when you learn how to do it pretty well, it still comes and goes. It's impermanent like everything else. So you don't get to be concentrated and stay that way. And because it's kind of delicious, that's actually one of the mm, warning points is that um, concentration can be very delicious, it produces altered states, and it's very easy to get attached to it. And then you want it, and guess what? I said this to somebody today. Attachment causes suffering. Even when it's attachment to very, very good things, like concentration. So then all of this leads to the last bit, which is wisdom. And so wisdom comes, it's already come. It's already come for all of us here this week. Something has probably showed itself to you already in your practice, and it's where we begin to see things. And you're, I mean, you're already wise, right? You're smart enough to know to be here. That's actually pretty impressive. And so the wisdom piece is where we see into the truth of things. We begin to understand them. And some of the wisdom that comes is very simple. It's like, oh, huh. I don't think my back is going to do that anymore. I'm probably getting too old. I'm going to have to start sitting in a chair. Now, you might not think of that as an insight, but actually it is. It's an insight into the truth of your own being. Or it may be a much more profound insight into impermanence or the nature of self and or to how we suffer. And that also then, you know, maybe see that when we let go, "Hmm, interesting, I let go and I felt a whole lot better. I was freer. Or when I'm reactive and angry, then I suffer as does everybody around me. So we, we begin to see, or look, when I let go of holding on to me as being the central thing, I, me, and mine, it's so much better. It's so much better. And here's the quote that I was going to use earlier. It's from Angela Silesius, and he says, God, whose love and joy are everywhere, can't come to visit you unless you aren't there. Hmm. So that place where again I, me, and mine isn't so central. So one of the most helpful things about this list, which I've just really skimmed over, is that these five faculties, these five tools, also um, they're not only are they causal; you can go from one to the other, but they also balance each other. So faith balances wisdom and effort balances concentration, and then mindfulness kind of keeps track of the whole thing. So falling in love can be great, right? As we said earlier, it's juicy. But blind faith can be really dangerous. So you find yourself in an abusive relationship with a partner or even with a teacher, or you go down some wrong track. So you actually really need that place of wisdom that can see more clearly and can say, whoops, watch out here, slow down. But wisdom by itself can be really, really dry and analytical and um, gets kind of not very interesting after a while, so the faith dimension brings more of the juice into it. And energy, of course, brings push and fire and. And moves us against obstacles and helps us get through the hindrances and all of that. And concentration really calms things down and helps us to get very quiet. But same thing. Too much energy, you're going to burn out. So you really need the concentration and the tranquility. And too much stillness, pretty soon you get stiller and stiller and stiller. And then you're not going anywhere. So mindfulness is what notices what's going on. So they're the tools, these five tools, trust and energy and mindfulness and concentration. So they support our awakening. And when you use them over and over again, that's where they become the strengths. They're the support of a clear mind and heart. So with them, that's how the practice becomes strong. And that's where we develop strength in our practice so that we can encounter these heavenly messengers that we talked about last night, of aging and illness and death. And it's the practice then, I think that also, remember that conversation about the monk, you know, who is, what is the monk for every one of us? Who is it that, what is that thing that beckons to a different way? And of course the practice is again, what allows us to be open to that calling. So I think then you have the mind of trust and that mind has the right amount of energy for every task. It's present, it can focus as needed, it can see deeply into the nature of things. And it's the mind that um, I think really bows deeply before the mystery of it all, perhaps knowing that in fact we are part of that mystery. So you, you already have everything that you need. You already have everything that you need. You already have the tools. You do. And you simply have to be still enough to be present enough to know what is there. So I think it's Gendun Rinpoche. I forgot to put it on here. He said, don't go into the tangled jungle looking for the great awakened elephant who is already resting quietly at home in front of your own hearth? Mm-hmm. Nothing to do or undo, nothing to force, nothing to want. So let's just sit and breathe for a minute. Don't, okay, wait a minute. Don't move. You're going to sit exactly as you are. No fancy meditation positions, just however you are. Please. thank you very much for your presence and your practice this evening. We've got about 40 minutes for a walking practice before the last sitting. So, And don't wait for me because it's going to take me a while to get untangled up here.